0: Two Chapter Three of Lord Tony's Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Lord Tony's Wife by Emuska Ortsey. Book Two Chapter Three The Fowlers. Part One, Section One. In order to reach the Carrefour de la Poissonnerie, the two men had to skirt the whole edifice of Le Buffet, walk a little along the quay, and turn up the narrow alley opposite the bridge. They walked on in silence, each absorbed in his own thoughts. The house occupied by the citizeness Adé lay back a little from the others in the street. It was one of an irregular row of mean, squalid, tumble-down houses, some of them little more than lean-to sheds built into the walls of le bouffet most of them had overhanging roofs which stretched out like awnings more than half-way across the road and even at midday shut out any little ray of sunshine which might have a tendency to peep into the street below in this year two of the republic the carrefour de la poissonnerie was unpaved dark and evil-smelling for two-thirds of the year it was ankle-deep in mud The rest of the time the mud was baked into cakes and emitted clouds of sticky dust under the shuffling feet of the passers-by. At night it was dimly lighted by one or two broken-down lanterns, which were hung on transverse chains overhead from house to house. These lanterns only made a very small circle of light immediately below them. The rest of the street was left in darkness, save for the faint glimmer which filtrated through an occasional ill-fitting doorway, or through the chinks of some insecurely fastened shutter the carrefour de la poissonnerie was practically deserted in the daytime only a few children miserable little atoms of humanity showing their meagre emaciated bodies through the scanty rags which failed to cover their nakedness played weird mirthless games in the mud and filth of the street but at night it became strangely peopled with vague and furtive forms that were wont to glide swiftly by beneath the hanging lanterns in order to lose themselves again in the welcome obscurity beyond, men and women, ill clothed and unshod, with hands buried in pockets or beneath scanty shawls, their feet ofttimes bare, making no sound as they went squishing through the mud. A perpetual silence used to reign in this kingdom of squalor and of darkness, where night hawks alone fluttered their wings. Only from time to time a joyless greeting of boon companions or the hoarse cough of some wretched consumptive would wake the dormant echoes that lingered in the gloom. Section 2 Martin Roger knew his way about the murky streets well enough. He went up to the house which lay a little back from the others. It appeared even more squalid than the rest. Not a sound came from within. Hardly a light only a narrow glimmer found its way through the chink of a shutter on the floor above to right and left of it the houses were tall with walls that reeked of damp and of filth from one of these the one on the left an iron sign dangled and creaked dismally as it swung in the wind just above the sign there was a window with partially closed shutters through it came the sound of two husky voices raised in heated argument in the open space in front of louise adet's house vague forms standing about or lounging against the walls of the neighboring houses were vaguely discernible in the gloom martin roger and chauvelin as they approached were challenged by a raucous voice which came to them out of the inky blackness around halt who goes there friends replied martin roger promptly is citizeness adet within yes she is retorted the man bluntly "'Excuse me, friend Adé, I did not know you in this confounded darkness.' "'No harm done,' said Martin Roget, "'And it is I who am grateful to you all for your vigilance.' "'Oh,' said the other with a laugh, "'there's not much fear of your bird getting out of its cage. "'Have no fear, friend Adé. "'That Kernogan rabble is well looked after.' The small group dispersed in the darkness, and Martin Roget rapped against the door of his sister's house with his knuckles. "'That is the Ratmore," he said, indicating the building on his left with a nod of the head. "'A very unpleasant neighbourhood for my sister, and she has oft complained of it. "'But name of a dog won't it prove useful this night?' Chauvelin had, as usual, followed his colleague in silence, but his keen eyes had not failed to note the presence of the village lads of whom Martin Roget had spoken. "'There are no eyes so watchful as those of hate, nor is there aught so incorruptible.' Every one of these men here had an old wrong to avenge, an old score to settle, and those cidavon Kernigans who had once been their masters and who were so completely in their power now. Louise Adet had gathered around her a far more efficient bodyguard than even the proconsul could hope to have. A moment or two later the door opened, softly and cautiously, and Martin Roget asked, "'Is that you, Louise?' For, if in a truth, the darkness was almost deeper within than without, and he could not see who it was that was standing by the door. "'Yes, it is,' replied a weary and querulous voice. "'Enter quickly. The wind is cruel, and I can't keep myself warm. "'Who is with you, Pierre?' "'A friend,' said Martin Roget dryly. "'We want to see the Aristo.' The woman without further comment closed the door behind the newcomers. The place now as dark as pitch— but she seemed to know her way about, like a cat, for her shuffling footsteps were heard moving about unerringly. A moment or two later she opened another door opposite the front entrance, revealing an inner room, a sort of kitchen, which was lighted by a small lamp. "'You can go straight up,' she said curtly to the two men. The narrow, winding staircase was divided from this kitchen by a wooden partition. Martin Roger, closely followed by Chauvelin, went up the stairs. On the top of these... There was a tiny landing, with a door on either side of it. Martin Roget, without any ceremony, pushed open the door on his right, with his foot. A tallow candle fixed in a bottle, and placed in the centre of a table, in the middle of the room, flickered in the draught as the door flew open. It was bare of everything, save a table, and a chair, and a bundle of straw in one corner. The tiny window at right angles to the door was innocent of glass and the north-westerly wind came in an icy stream through the aperture. On the table, in addition to the candle, there was a broken pitcher half-filled with water, and a small chunk of brown bread blotched with stains of mould. On the chair beside the table, and immediately facing the door, sat Yvonne Lady Dewhurst. On the wall above her head, a hand unused to calligraphy had traced in clumsy characters the words Liberté, Fraternité, Égalité, and below that Section three. The men entered the narrow room and Chauvelin carefully closed the door behind them. He at once withdrew into a remote corner of the room and stood there, quite still, wrapped in his mantle, a small, silent, mysterious figure on which Yvonne fixed dark, inquiring eyes. Martin Roger, restless and excited, paced up and down the small space like a wild animal in a cage. From time to time, exclamations of impatience escaped him, and he struck one fist repeatedly against his open palm. Yvonne followed his movements with a quiet, uninterested glance, but Chauvelin paid no heed whatever to him. He was watching Yvonne ceaselessly and closely. Three days' incarceration in this wind-swept attic, the lack of decent food and of warmth, the want of sleep and the horror of her present position, all following upon the sole agony which she had endured, when she was forcibly torn away from her dear milor, had left their mark on Yvonne Duhurst's fresh young face. The look of gravity, which had always sat so quaintly on her piquant features, had now changed to one of deep and abiding sorrow. Her dark, large eyes were circled and sunk. They had in them the unnatural glow of fever, as well as the settled look of horror and of pathetic resignation. Her soft brown hair had lost its luster, Her cheeks were drawn and absolutely colourless. Martin Roger paused in his restless walk. For a moment he stood silent and absorbed, contemplating by the flickering light of the candle all the havoc which his brutality had wrought upon Yvonne's dainty face. But Yvonne, after a while, ceased to look at him. She appeared to be unconscious of the gaze of these two men, each of whom was at this moment only thinking of the evil which he meant to inflict upon her each of whom only thought of her as a helpless bird, whom he had at last ensnared, and whom he could crush to death as soon as he felt so inclined. She kept her lips tightly closed, and her head averted. She was gazing across the unglazed window into the obscurity beyond, marvelling at what direction lay the sea and the shores of England. Martin Roger crossed his arms over his broad chest and clutched his elbows with his hands, with an obvious effort to keep control over his movements and his temper in check. The quiet, almost indifferent attitude of the girl was exasperating to his overstrung nerves. "'Look here, my girl,' he said at last, roughly and peremptorily. "'I had an interview with the proconsul this afternoon. "'He chides me for my lenience towards you. Three days, he thinks, is far too long to keep traitors eating the bread of honest citizens "'and taking up valuable space in our city.' "'Yesterday I made a proposal to you. "'Have you thought on it?' Yvonne made no reply. She was still gazing out into nothingness, and just at that moment she was very far away from the narrow, squalid room and the company of these two inhuman brutes. She was thinking of her dear Malor and of that lovely home at Conewich, wherein she had spent three such unforgettable days. She was remembering how beautiful had been the colour of the bare twigs in the chestnut coppice, when the wintry sun danced through and in between them, and drew fantastic patterns of living gold upon the carpet of dead leaves. And she remembered, too, how exquisite were the tints of russet and blue on the distant hills, and how quaintly the thrushes had called, Kiss me quick! She saw again those trembling leaves of a delicious, faintly crimson hue, which still hung upon the branches of the scarlet oak, and the early flowering heath which clothed the moors with a gorgeous mantle of rosy amethyst. Martin Roget's harsh voice brought her abruptly back to the hideous reality of the moment. "'Your obstinacy will avail you nothing,' he said, speaking quietly, even though a note of intense irritation was distinctly perceptible in his voice. "'The proconsul has given me a further delay, wherein to deal leniently with you, and with your father, if I am so minded. You know what I have proposed to you.' Life with me as my wife, in which case your father will be free to return to England, or to go to the devil as he pleases, or the death of a malefactor for you, in the company of all the thieves and evildoers who are mouldering in the prisons of Nantes at this moment. Another delay wherein to choose between an honourable life and a shameful death. The proconsul waits, but to-night he must have his answer. Then Yvonne turned her head slowly and looked calmly on her enemy. THE TYRANT WHO MURDERS INNOCENT MEN, WOMEN, AND CHILDREN, SHE SAID, CAN HAVE HIS ANSWER NOW. I CHOOSE DEATH, WHICH IS INEVITABLE IN PREFERENCE TO A LIFE OF SHAME. YOU SEEM, HE RETORTED, TO HAVE LOST SIGHT OF THE FACT THAT THE LAW GIVES ME THE RIGHT TO TAKE BY FORCE THAT WHICH YOU SO OBSTINATELY REFUSE. HAVE I NOT SAID, SHE REPLIED, THAT DEATH IS MY CHOICE. LIFE WITH YOU WILL BE A LIFE OF SHAME. I CAN GET A PRIEST TO MARRY US WITHOUT YOUR CONSENT. "'and your religion forbids you to take your own life,' he said with a sneer. "'To this she made no reply, but he knew that he had his answer. "'Smothering a curse, he resumed after a while. "'So you prefer to drag your father to death with you. "'Yet he has begged you to consider your decision, and to listen to reason. "'He has given his consent to our marriage. "'Let me see my father,' she retorted firmly, "'and hear him say that with his own lips.' "'Ah!' she added quickly, for at her words, Martin Roger had turned his head away and shrugged his shoulders with self-assumed indifference. "'You cannot and dare not let me see him. "'For three days now you have kept us apart and no doubt fed us both up with your lies. "'My father is Duc de Kernogan, Marquis de Tontemont,' she added proudly. "'He would rather die side by side with his daughter than see her wedded to a criminal. "'And you, my girl?' rejoined Martin Roger coldly. Would you see your father branded as a malefactor, linked to a thief, and sent to perish in the Loire? My father, she retorted, will die as he has lived, a brave and honourable gentleman. The brand of a malefactor cannot cling to his name. Sorrow we are ready to endure. Death is less than nothing to us. We will but follow in the footsteps of our king and of our queen, and of many whom we care for and whom you and your proconsul and your colleagues have brutally murdered shame cannot touch us and the honour of our pride are so far beyond your reach that your impious and blood-stained hands can never sully them she has spoken very slowly and very quietly there were no heroics about her attitude even martin roger callous brute though he was felt that she had only spoken just as she felt and that nothing that he might say no plea that he might urge would ever shake her determination then it seems to me he said that i am only wasting my time by trying to make you see reason and common sense you look upon me as a brute well perhaps i am at any rate i am that which your father and you have made me four years ago when you had power over me and over mine you brutalized us Today, we the people are your masters and we make you suffer not for all that were impossible but for part of what you made us suffer that after all is only bare justice by making you my wife i would have saved you from death not from humiliation for that you must endure and at my hands in a full measure but i would have made you my wife because i still have pleasant recollections of that kiss which i snatched from you on that never-to-be-forgotten night and in the darkness "'a kiss for which you would have gladly seen me hang, then, "'if you could have laid hands on me.' "'He paused, trying to read what was going on "'behind those fine eyes of hers, "'with their vacant, far-seeing gaze, "'which seemed like another barrier between her and him. "'At this rough allusion to that moment of horror and of shame, "'she had not moved a muscle, "'nor did her gaze lose its fixity. "'He laughed. "'It is an unpleasant recollection, eh, my proud lady?' "'The first kiss of passion was not implanted on your exquisite lips by that fine gentleman "'whom you deemed worthy of your hand and your love, "'but by Pierre Adet, the miller's son, what? "'A creature not quite so human as your horse or your pet dog. "'Neither you nor I are like to forget that, methinks.' "'Yvonne vouchsafed no reply to the taunt, "'and for a moment there was silence in the room, "'until Chauvelin's thin, suave voice broke in quite gently.' don't lose your patience with the wench citizen martin Roget. your time is too precious to be wasted in useless recriminations i have finished with her retorted the other sullenly she shall be dealt with now as i think best i agree with citizen Carrier. he is right after all to the loire with a lot of that foul brood nay here rejoined chauvelin with placid urbanity. are you not a little harsh citizen with our fair yvonne remember women have moods and megrims What they indignantly refuse to yield to us one day, they will grant with a smile the next. Our beautiful Yvonne is no exception to this rule, I warrant. Even while he spoke, he threw a glance of warning at his colleague. There was something enigmatic in his manner at this moment, and the strange suavity wherein he spoke these words of conciliation and of gentleness. Martin Roger was, as usual, ready with an impatient retort. He was in a mood to bully and to brutalise, to heap threat upon threat, to win by frightfulness that which he could not gain by persuasion. Perhaps that at this moment he desired Yvonne de Kernogan for wife, more even than he desired her death. At any rate, his headstrong temper was ready to chafe against any warnings or advice. But once again, Chauvelin's stronger mentality dominated over his less resolute colleague. Martin Roger, the fowler, was in his turn caught in the net of a keener snarer than himself, and whilst, with the obstinacy of the weak, he was making mental resolutions to rebuke Chauvelin for his interference later on, he had already fallen in with the latter's attitude. The wench has had three whole days wherein to alter her present mood, he said more quietly, and you know yourself, citizen, that the proconsul will not wait after to-day. The day is young yet, rejoined Chauvelin. It still hath six hours to its credit, six hours, Three hundred and sixty minutes, he continued with a pleasant little laugh. Time enough for a woman to change her mind three hundred and sixty times. Let me advise you, citizen, to leave the wench to her own meditations for the present, and I trust that she will accept the advice of a man who has a sincere regard for her beauty and her charms, and who is old enough to be her father, and seriously think the situation over in a conciliatory spirit monsieur le duc de Kernogan will be grateful to her for for the truth he is not over-happy either at the moment and will be still less happy in the depot to-morrow it is overcrowded and typhus i fear me is rampant among the prisoners he has i am convinced in spite of what the citizeness says to the contrary a rooted objection to being hurled into the loire or to be arraigned before the bar of the convention not as an aristocrat and a traitor but as a unit of an undesirable herd of criminals sent up to Paris for trial by an anxious and harried proconsul. There, there, he said benignly, we will not worry our fair Yvonne any longer, will we, citizen? I think she has grasped the alternative and will soon realize that marriage with an honorable patriot is not such an untoward fate after all. And now, citizen Martin Roget, he concluded, I pray you allow me to take my leave of the fair lady. "'and to give you the wise recommendation to do likewise. "'She will be far better alone for a while. "'Night brings good counsel, so they say.' "'He watched the girl keenly while he spoke. "'Her impassivity had not deserted her for a single moment, "'but whether her calmness was of hope or of despair "'he was unable to decide. "'On the whole, he thought it must be the latter. "'Hope would have kindled a spark in those dark purple-rimmed eyes.' It would have brought moisture to the lips, a tremor to the hand. The scarlet pimpernel was in Nantes, that fact was established beyond a doubt, but Chauvelin had come to the conclusion that so far as Yvonne Duhurst herself was concerned, she knew nothing of the mysterious agencies that were working on her behalf. Chauvelin's hand closed with a nervous contraction over the packet of papers in his pocket, Something of the secret of that enigmatic English adventurer lay revealed within its folds. Chauvelin had not yet had the opportunity of examining them. The interview with Yvonne had been the most important business for the moment. From somewhere in the distance a city clock struck six. The afternoon was wearing on. The keenest brain in Europe was on the watch to drag one woman and one man from the deadly trap which had been so successfully set for them. A few hours more, and Chauvelin in his turn would be pitting his wits against the resources of that intricate brain, and he felt like a war-horse scenting blood and battle. He was aching to get to work, aching to form his plans, to lay his snares, to dispose his traps so that the noble English quarry should not fail to be caught within its meshes. He gave a last look to Yvonne, who was still sitting quite impassive, gazing through the squalid walls into some beautiful distance, the reflection of which gave to her pale, wan face an added beauty. "'Let us go, citizen Martin Roger,' he said peremptorily. "'There is nothing else that we can do here.' And Martin Roger, the weaker morally of the two, yielded to the stronger personality of his colleague. He would have liked to stay on for a while, to gloat for a few moments longer over the helplessness of the woman who to him represented the root of every evil which had ever befallen him and his family. But Chauvelin commanded, and he felt impelled to obey. He gave one long last look at Yvonne, a look that was as full of triumph as of mockery. He looked round the four dank walls, the unglazed window, the broken pitcher, the mouldy bread. Revenge was of a truth the sweetest emotion of the human heart. Pierre Adet, son of the miller, who had been hanged by orders of the duke de kernogel for a crime which he had never committed would not at this moment have changed places with fortune's benjamin end of book two chapter three part one